Good morning, good morning. morning. Good to be back with you. I pray that you're looking forward to this study in the book of Acts. If you would find your way to chapter 10. Today we'll be introduced to a man by the name of Cornelius. It's a really interesting and very important section of Scripture. But it has been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Acts, so uh, let me just kind of go back just a little bit, just a few chapters. At the end of chapter 7, we have Stephen being stoned. And as Stephen is stoned, following that, we have this great persecution that arises against the church. And the believers there in Jerusalem are scattered. In Acts 8, we see Philip is one of those who was scattered. He goes into the region of Samaria and evangelizes that the Samaritans down in that, na- in that land. Then as we move through chapter 8, we read of Philip again being sent down toward, you know, on the road that leads out of Jerusalem, going to Ethiopia, to one particular man, the Ethiopian eunuch, at the end of chapter 8. Chapter 9 opens up. We're, we were given a glimpse into the conversion of Saul, of Tarsus. Then the narrative just shifts away from Saul and moves to Peter. Peter's in a town called Lydda. And it's there. He found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. And the Lord, through Peter, heals this man. Then again, Luke just moves straight from the account of Aeneas to Tabitha, who was down in Joppa. She's a disciple of the Lord. And she dies. Some disciples from Joppa make the trip to Lydda and they summon Peter to come to them without delay. Peter makes that 10-mile hike from Lydda to Joppa and by the power of God, Peter raises her from the dead. And then we read where Peter remains in Joppa for some days in the house of a a tanner named Simon. That's where chapter 9 closes. So the theme really Throughout 8 and 9 has been the gospel explosion. The ripple effect from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is going to be continued in Acts 10 as our focus is shifted 30 miles north to Caesarea. So if you would read with me verses 1 through 8, Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers... And your alms have been ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So this account, the conversion of Cornelius, 
is the longest single narrative in the book of Acts. It's going to go from Acts chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through Acts chapter 11, verse 18. That should indicate to us that this is a major, major event. We have it here in Acts chapter 10, the account of Peter and Cornelius. In Acts 11, Peter's going to be back in Jerusalem, and he's going to be criticized for, for eating with, with Gentiles. And he, right, he readdresses this. He actually brings up this issue yet again. And in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, Peter again will point to this account. This is a major event in the book of Acts. This is God's Word. It is inspired. It is preserved. And it's God's wisdom that He's given such great detail surrounding this event. So let us not rush through it. So we did notice, as we was kind of given a little bit of a history of chapter 9, that Peter willingly ran to the aid of Aeneas, the bedridden man. Peter willingly follows the disciples to Tabitha in Joppa. So are we going to see this same willingness as this Gentile centurion named Cornelius needs help? And I hope you also picked up on the, uh, the progression of the needs, how they're just escalating. We have a bedridden man, eight years bedridden, paralyzed for eight years and... God heals him. Next section. Peter, Tabitha, is dead. It's kind of worse than being paralyzed. God raises her. And here, we read about a man named Cornelius, who is separated from God. That's the worst possible condition. And Peter will bring a message of reconciliation. I hope you see the progression as this thing is escalating here. So the title of this section would be Religiously Lost. Religiously Lost. Verse 1 begins at Caesarea. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So the description and character of Cornelius are going to be, we're introduced to this right off the bat. Just Luke just kind of just shifts focus. We were down in Joppa. Simon Peter was with Simon the Tanner, and now, boom, we're over here in Caesarea. 30 miles north, and we're introduced to a man named Cornelius, who is a centurion. So when, when you hear the word century, what do you think? What hundred? That, that, that's it. So Cornelius was a commander over a hundred soldiers. That's what that introduced. Maybe that'll help stick. Then it says he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A cohort would be a group of, sen- uh, a group of six centurion. So it's 600 soldiers. 600 soldiers, six centurions, one cohort. You know, the old King James says he was part of the Italian band. And I thought Blake would run with that in some 80s song or something. But it says here that he is a part of the Italian Cohort. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. He's devout. 
He's, he's good. He's respectful. He's sincere. He feared God with all his household. Cornelius, as a Roman centurion, was no longer worshiping those polytheistic Roman gods in that culture of Rome. Cornelius here had now embraced the customs and the, and the teachings of Judaism. That's what's being taught. And he's leading his household throughout this. He's leading his household well. Then we read here that he gave alms generously to the people. Look in Greek, this present tense verb here indicates that this is an ongoing action. He consistently gave charity. Generously. Generously. You know, politicians love to give away money. It's just not theirs. But here, Cornelius is constantly, generously giving charity, money, time. He's giving himself. And it says here, I hope you see that phrase, to the people. This phrase implies that Cornelius was giving generously to the Jews. Look down in verse 22. In verse 22, this is another description of Cornelius. It says here that he is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And we'll, we'll notice as we move into verse 3 that Cornelius is going to be praying at the customary Jewish times, the customary times that the Jews would pray. Cornelius may have embraced the Jewish people in their religion, but they've not embraced him. And religiously, he's cut off as a Gentile, as a centurion, as a God-fearer. But note now, he's not a proselyte. He's not a proselyte. Look in chapter 13. The word proselyte in Scripture is transliterated. It is the Greek word. So proselyte is just translated or transliterated. A translation may be the word convert. Acts 13, verse 43. It says there, many Jews and devout converts, that's devout proselytes, to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Many God-fearing proselytes there followed Paul and Barnabas. I just want you to see that phrase. We don't have that phrase when it refers to Cornelius. He's a God-fearer, but he's not a God-fearing proselyte. He's not a, a convert, as we'd say. He's not fully converted to Judaism because he's not been circumcised. He's not... He's not entered into circumcision. So he's not, a, he's not a proselyte there. And this is very uh, easy to um, understand. Look in, in chapter 11, verse 3. This is when Peter arrives back in Jerusalem. He's, he's taking some heat. He's taking some criticism. In verse 3 it says, They were criticizing him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. See, plainly, Cornelius was not circumcised. So he was not a proselyte. He was not a full convert. But he was a God-fearer who had embraced the Jewish religion and its, and its um, customs. With the exception of circumcision. So Cornelius here is a God-fearing, sincere, 
respectable, giving, praying, good husband, good father, good commander, good soldier. Still, Cornelius is lost. He's lost. And this is not up for debate. On in chapter 11 again, we're told in verse 13, this is what the angel instructs Cornelius to do. He is to send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he, Peter, will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. You will be saved. That's future tense. Indicates what? Cornelius is lost. So looking in verse 2 again, think, look, he is a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God and he's lost. Much like the religious people we read about in Ecclesiastes. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. Let me just color this in just a little bit. Look down in verse 30. Verse 30, it says there, this is, again, this story gets told a couple times and we get a little bit more detail. We're told in verse 30, Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So when we look back up in verse 3, at the ninth hour of the day, when he saw this vision of an angel of God, what was he doing? He was praying. That's what he was doing. That shouldn't shock us. He prayed continually to God, as we're told. But why did, why did Luke point out the hour here? It says it was in the ninth hour where he saw the vision. Well, look, it was a Jewish custom to pray three times a day. We, get, we can read that as, as way back as Daniel. They would pray in the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, which would be 9 o'clock, noon, and 3 p.m. That's when they would pray. In, in Acts 3, verse 1, reads this way. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So Cornelius was following the Jewish practice of, praying, of praying at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. That's, that's what we're seeing here. It shows his... Uh, I guess, adherence to their traditions and their customs. That's what we're seeing. So the ninth hour, 3 p.m., was the hour of prayer according to Acts 3. It was also the time of the evening sacrifice. So if I gave you a pop quiz right now, at 3 p.m., the ninth hour, was the hour of the evening sacrifice, what hour did Jesus die? Pop quiz. He died in the ninth hour. He died at 3 p.m. He died at the time of the evening sacrifice. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all intentionally record this. 
Our Lord doesn't miss not one little detail. As they're offering up these prayers, they're offering up these evening sacrifices, that is when the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, was laid. Just a little bonus. Wasn't able to cheat on that pop quiz, was you, Blake? <laughs> but at 3 p.m., when the evening sacrifices are going on, during this hour of prayer, we have Cornelius praying in his house. And an angel of God comes in, just comes in and says to him, Cornelius, calls him by name. Maybe that's John 10, the good shepherd, knows his sheep and he calls them by name. Verse 4, And he, Cornelius, stared at him, the angel, in terror, and said, What is it, Lord? He stared at him in terror. Look, this is a, a soldier, a commander of a hundred soldiers, known for their bravery. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord in terror. Greek word, emphobos. This is one of Luke's favorite words. And we know what phobia is. It's, that, it's just being absolutely petrified. Petrified. Not just stunned, shocked, alarmed. He's terrified. What is it, Lord? The angel responds, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Verse 31 puts it this way. Verse 31, if you want to look down, says, Your prayer has been heard. Cornelius was praying, and his prayer was heard. His prayer will be answered. Now, real quick, I'm sure some of your minds have wandered off the path here. Maybe you've wondered this. If Cornelius is lost, and John 9 says that we know that God does not listen to sinners, how did God hear this? Well, beside the fact that He's omniscient and He hears all things, knows all things, Right? So let's wade into these waters just a bit. Let's ease off in here. In John 9, where that verse, it's not even a full verse, by the way. It's a, it's a section of a verse that says, We know that God does not hear sinners that in John 9. That comes from the lips of a formerly blind man to the Pharisees. Jesus had healed this man, and the Pharisees are furious. Furious. Ever since the world began, no one has opened the eyes of the blind. And here Jesus does it with ease. So they're calling Jesus this great sinner. God's not working through Jesus. God would never listen to sinners. And the blind man is really just using logic. He's really just saying, if God doesn't listen to sinners, and Jesus is this great sinner, how in the world can I see now? That's what he's saying. He's not making a theological point. He's actually pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. The very fact that I can now see is proof that Jesus is who He says He is. The Father is working through the Son. Look, there's other passages we know that kind of support this. Luke 18, that's a very popular one. Uh, the Pharisees and the tax collector. The tax collector standing there afar off. Will not even lift up his eyes to heaven beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man went down to his house justified. God heard the prayers 
of the sinner. All the people in Nineveh in the days of Jonah, God heard and answered their prayer. Well, maybe you're thinking, yeah, God hears the prayer as they're crying out for salvation. Maybe that's it. Well, God answered the prayer. God answered read really, the cry of Hagar. Right? He responds to a man named wicked King Ahab. He responded to Cain. He responded to Balaam. Look, so let's not take a verse that's pointing out the sonship of Jesus in John 9 and make that a theological point that doesn't square with the whole of Scripture. So where's the line drawn? Maybe you're wanting to draw the line. Where's the line drawn? Here it is. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says this. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Okay, and believers should, by and large, be praying according to His will. The Spirit enables us to do this. Unbelievers won't be praying according to His will typically, right? So with Cornelius, we clearly see God's hand in this. There's, there's, no, there's no avoiding it. This is God's grace in a man's life even before he was saved. So this angel comes in. He's petrified. What is it? Your prayer has been heard, as verse 31 puts it. Verse 34, verse 32 goes on. It says, sin therefore. So your prayer has been heard, therefore. Here's how this, this prayer is going to be answered. Send to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. So whatever Cornelius was praying for, the answer from God was to go get Peter. Peter was going to be the agent which God will use to answer the prayer of Cornelius. Right? Okay, so what's he praying? Maybe, look, I think we are given some information that kind of helps us fill this in. Look with me in verse 21. Verse 21. So Peter, Cornelius is going to send these men to Joppa to grab Peter. Peter went down to the men in verse 21. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm Peter. I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're coming? Verse 22. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Okay? You remember this, chapter 11, verse 14, it said that Peter was going to come with a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So look, the context is clear. Cornelius lost. Cornelius is a lost man. He's cut off from God. He's cut off from the Jewish religion. And yet he's seeking God. He sees the emptiness in the religion of Judaism. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. Quote, It is interesting to see how religious a person can be and still not be saved. Certainly Cornelius was sincere in his obedience to God's law, his fasting, his generosity to the Jewish people. 
But the difference between Cornelius and many religious people today is this. Cornelius knew that his religious devotion was not sufficient to save him. He's asking God to show him the way of salvation. End quote. Seek and you will find, as Scripture tells us. Cornelius is not an anomaly. The Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8 presented much of the same case. So here, Cornelius is praying to God, and God's answer to his prayer is, Go get Peter. He will tell you words or a message by which you must be saved. We know exactly what he's praying for. Five and six. So send me into Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Look, here's God's answer to Cornelius' prayer. It's very, very specific. Send to Joppa, bring one who is Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, who is a tanner, and their house is by the sea. Specific, authoritative, sovereign. Clear, not, not, amb- not ambiguous, not at all. This is the pattern over the last three chapters in Acts, tw- in Acts 8. As the Lord is telling Philip, he tells him to go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, and go over to that chariot, that one right there. In Acts 9, when, when Saul has been struck down in his blindness and he's in That house there, we're told, the Lord goes to Ananias and tells him to go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Very, very detailed, specific, authoritative, sovereign. God God doesn't leave anything to chance here. They will go find the, the right Peter. Send men to Joppa for Peter and bring him back to Cornelius' house. And he will tell you words by which you will be saved. 7 and 8. And when the angel who had spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. As soon as the angel departed, Cornelius calls for two of his servants and one of his military soldiers. He explained everything to them. They know the task, they know the reason, they know the importance, they know the urgency. Look, we love, we love the sovereignty of God. Amen? And we understand the responsibility of man. But what was Cornelius instructed to do? To send men to Joppa. To send for Peter. And when the angel had departed, we're told here, he immediately sent for Peter. Look, I'm not reading into this. Verse 33 tells us. So I sent for you at once. The legacy reads, so I sent for you immediately. Look, there's no delay in Cornelius. Maybe as a soldier, as a commander, he's used to taking orders and executing the orders. He's instructed what to do and he gets after it. And Peter's going to be coming to Cornelius' house with a message through which Cornelius will be saved. But it's not until four days, it's not until four days later that Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. So maybe you're wondering, what did Cornelius do during these four days? He sent these men, these two people who served him, this soldier, this devout soldier, 
to go get Peter and bring him back. And, you know, it's a 30-mile trip, so it, it takes some time. Four days. What do, you, what, do we, what do you wonder he's doing during that four-day period? We're told in verse 24. This is just showing us the heart of Cornelius. So as Peter and, and, and that band that went to go get Peter, and they're coming back, Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. He was expecting them, right? Of course he is. This verb carries with it a sense of urgency. And the verb tense there means he was doing it again and again. Like, it's almost like he's just looking out the window. And then going and doing something, coming back and looking out the window, or, or just pulling the curtains back, just looking over the hill, just eagerly waiting on Peter and those to come. His heart was just in this eager anticipation. So he knew that Peter was coming with, with words that would save himself and his household. And so what does he do? He calls together his relatives and calls together his close friends. Cornelius is saying pretty much, in essence, if this message is able to save my troubled soul, I want you to hear it as well. This man, Cornelius, is evangelistic, and yet he's lost. The gospel message that Peter would bring back, the very words that was able to save his soul, this gospel message is an absolute treasure to Cornelius. And he's eagerly waiting on someone just to come and share these words which would just lift the burden off him. What a treasure to Cornelius. And honestly, it's quite shameful for those of us who know the gospel and hold it in so, such low regard. Cornelius didn't. So let's look at a few things here in application. All right. We notice throughout this, one, that Cornelius is a good man. He is. He's a religious man. And yet he's lost. So what does that tell us? That the gospel is a message to sinners, and we're all sinners. The gospel is to be shared indiscriminately. The gospel is God's chosen way to redeem souls. And all mankind, all mankind will perish apart from this message. Salvation is in the message. And we are conduits of this message. Remember the angel that appeared to Cornelius? The question we have to ask is, why didn't the angel tell Cornelius the gospel? Fair question, right? Instead, the angel told him to go to Joppa, to send men to Joppa and bring a man named Peter into your house and he will tell you a message by which you will be saved. Why didn't the angel relay the message? We're nodding our heads. But as today, there are many, many, many Muslims who claim to have seen Jesus in a dream and been converted. I don't know if you read this or not, but it's, it's, it's phenomenal that everybody's talking about, right? The Jesus that they're talking to is what they would call Isa. He's evangelizing the Muslim world. 
And most really don't see an issue with this. But why did God send Philip to the eunuch? Why did God send Peter to Cornelius? Why does Jesus say in Acts 1.8, when He's talking to the apostles, He tells them, You will be my witness in Jerusalem. You will be my witness in Samaria and throughout the ends of the earth. It's their message. It's their witness that would be what the Lord uses. You will be my witness, not angels. And some people who want to maybe defend this will say, well, it's their, their, you know, their faith, where they are, the way they're raised, it's just hard for them to believe. Well, apparently they don't understand total depravity. It's impossible to believe unless God draws them. God wouldn't have broke or changed courses in the way He set in place here in Acts. The way He's going to reach the world is through the gospel. Plain and simple. Jesus even touches on this in Matthew 24. When Matthew 24, they're going to Jesus and asking about what will happen in the latter days. What will the latter days be like? He tells them in Matthew 24 that people will basically be coming and say, if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ. There He is. Don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, He's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, He's in the upper room, do not believe it. There are many people who are claiming to have seen the Christ. Here He is. Look here. Look here. Listen here. Come to me in a vision, in a dream. There's a book titled God Doesn't Whisper by Jim Osmond. And in this book he has a quote that goes like this. Because, inveg- <laughs> because evangelistic gospel ministry is not dream-centered but rather word-centered. Evangelism isn't helping Muslims interpret their dreams. Evangelism is sharing the truth of Scripture with them. End quote. It's just, you know, I guess maybe it's just our heart. You know, we, we're, we really hope they're saved. You know, we're excited to see anyone as they come to faith in Christ. But it's, there's just so, there has to be a, a level of discernment involved in this too. It just... It doesn't seem to square with Scripture as a whole, again, as he has sent Philip to the eunuch, as he sent Peter here to Cornelius. Why, all of a sudden, would he appear in dreams to the Muslim world? Maybe let's move on. Another point would be, I know, and uh, maybe this is a little fleshly here, but there is a tendency to maybe to be envious of some of these apostolic gifts. You know, it would be... It would be nice to be able to heal a man who had been paralyzed for eight years. To just see him rejoice and run and jump and play. and uh, You know, it would be through the power of God to, to raise Tabitha from the dead and bring comfort and joy to those who are grieving, right? But both, look, look, both Aeneas and Tabitha, their improvements, if that's what you want to call it, they're only temporary. They both died. They both died. Look, 
the, the, and yet the gift that we've been given, the task that we've been given, is to be instruments that God uses to save souls. We're entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Look, we play a part in eternally changing people's lives. Not a temporary feel better. As nice as that would be, we're, we're kind of drawn to that, but we have something much, much greater, of much more weight. Isn't that a greater purpose? Which feeds into the final point. This is going to be kind of borrowed bits and pieces. John MacArthur's uh, can be a little more wordy than I am. But once the Lord saves us, the question is, why does He keep us in the world? Why are we left behind? Why not immediately snatch us up into His presence? Well, you could say we're left behind to worship. That's true. Yes, we are saved to worship. But our worship is imperfect. God tolerates our imperfect worship this side of eternity. Well, He leaves us here to be sanctified. Maybe that's the answer. But again, our sanctification is incomplete. It's inadequate. It's not until we cross over into eternity where we'll finally completely be sanctified and our worship will be pure and perfect. So why are we left behind? The only reason God has kept us in the world is for the work of evangelism. Evangelizing lost souls is the one thing we can do on earth that we cannot do from heaven. Being the instrument that God uses to proclaim the message of His glorious gospel. That God sent His Son to die. To pay for the sins of all who would believe so that we may be reconciled to Him, no longer estranged, no longer cut off. Rather received as sons and daughters. This, brothers and sisters, is why we are left behind. I pray that we hold the gospel of Jesus Christ as that great treasure. As, as we look at Cornelius, as he's just anticipating it. Just so eager. He grabs his friends. He grabs his close relatives and come and hear these words. This is why we're left behind. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the gospel is for everyone the good, the bad, and the ugly. Redemption, salvation is through a message, a message delivered by men and women, not angels. So let's circle back real quick to a question. Will a good life get you into heaven? What if I said yes, just not yours? The perfect life of Jesus and His righteousness imputed to you. Your sins, your shortcomings, your imperfections laid on Him. This great exchange that happened at the cross of Calvary. It's our only hope. This message is our only hope. The religion, all the exercise, the little punch list... Everything that we tend to do is not where our hope is. You know, Cornelius saw the emptiness in that and prayed, prayed. God heard him. God sent a man to him. 
And we'll read later on in this chapter that the Lord miraculously saves him and his household. And he's able to do it again today. Just pray that we're willing as Peter, we're as eager and evangelistic as Cornelius. Praise God, there's a lot in this little eight-verse section. Pray we can learn a lot from a lost man, right? If you would, please stand.